Okay, I'm glad you're here. Thanks for coming. Um, we're going to talk about a, a, a bunch of things today, uh, including some, some more thoughts about this whole amazing concept that the, the Torah is black fire on white fire, just to get a little bit more into the white fire, but t- talk about a number of other things too. You know, I just, uh, here, in, here in Los Angeles, uh, people, I don't know, I, I'll just tell you the story. I, I was in shul this morning and, uh, you know, people were leaving and wishing each other a, a good day, but I never heard this before and it became that much more meaningful just because it was coming um, out of the mouth of a, a man in his 80s and he said, have a good day, have a good week, have a good time change because we changed the clocks today and I'd never been wished a happy time change before so I thought that was, wow, that was that was nice. I, I liked that. Um, okay, so I'm sure that's a very L.A. thing. I don't know where else in the world they wish each other a happy time change but anyway, um, so... So, lots of things, but let me, I just want to start with one thing, though, because I think, uh, I just want to say just one thing about the, uh, about the earthquake and the tsunami in, in Japan. Um, you know, this is a, a Torah talk, um, but, you know, one of the fundamentals of just reality life, everything like that, is is that we're all, every single one in the world, we're all God's children, and and you know this is all this is obviously a a tragedy for 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 every human being uh and um so so we have to open up our hearts for that and and with regard to it we also have to take a a a lesson from it and if you asked a, a million people what there is to learn from from this i'm sure you'll get a, a million different answers but let me just give you what what kind of came to me which is that um you know, an earthquake is something that just, it shakes the foundation. That's what it does. It shakes the foundation of everything. And it says in the, in the Talmud that, to put it in a very simple way, that, that when God brings earthquakes, it's to remind us that he's here. You know, and, uh, and so, so I was thinking that we, we have to take that lesson also, all of us, you know, whether we're... Uh, immediately or personally affected um, uh, on a visceral level, or, or just just whatever it is, just the fact that it's 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 a, it's a message to, to to all of us. So I was reminded of a um, of a of a piece of a gadita. It's a a story um, in, in the Gemara, and it goes like this: that there's a uh, a ship filled with people, and they see an island. And they want to go and they want to uh, have a picnic on the island. So they get off the ship and they get into little boats and they, they go to the island. And they're sort of uh, getting ready to make a picnic on the island. And they want to cook some food. So what they do is they, they set a fire, you know, a small like a campfire on this island. And then all of a sudden what happens is the entire island starts to shift and what they realize is that this thing that they thought was an island wasn't an island. That it basically was something like a whale. And this whale had sort of surfaced. And so its, its hump or the upper part of the whale had broken through the water. And it was just sort of like resting there. And so it appeared like it was an island, but it wasn't an island. And then when someone set a fire on the back of this animal, 
it appropriately reacted and turned over into the water and sent everyone flying and the people who were on that island didn't make it or thought they were on an island. They, they drowned. So, so this is one of, the, one of the levels that the Gemara is trying to communicate to us is we have to be really, really careful what we accept as the foundations of our life. That a lot of times we look to something as a foundation that it's not really a foundation. And, and this earthquake, you know, that shakes all the foundations has to lead us to ask ourselves, what are the foundations of our own life and are, they, are, we, are we making firm foundations, basically? You know, and of course, you know, in, in my opinion, the, the firmest foundation that a person can have is God. That's what it is, because that's the, the whole world is nothing but God. I mean, it's all God. You know, as Rabbi Green once said, the, it's, the, it's the only thing that's going on 24-7 is God. That's it, basically. So, so you know, obviously, life is mysterious and it's filled with questions and everything like that. And we, we don't understand everything and we're not supposed to understand everything and we can't pretend to know everything. But at the same time, we can understand the, the, the fundamentals. And so, again... Um, Again, just uh, it's very important when, when something this dramatic, I mean, I just saw the New York Times, God willing, this will have a happy ending, but, but uh, you know, right now the, the, the headline of the Sunday New York Times is that they're trying to contain nuclear meltdowns there, you know, because they're nuclear power plants that are now emitting radiation above acceptable levels. So it's serious business. It's serious business for, for all of us on whatever level you want to react to it. And of course, a, a very appropriate response is, is to make some kind of contribution. You know, and if, if you, there are a zillion organizations that are collecting on behalf, you know, but if you want to give it to a Jewish organization, that's a beautiful thing too, just to show that we, that we care, you know. Um, but anyway, uh, whatever we can do. So now... I had a very interesting week. This last week was like really just filled with all sorts of things. And um, one of them was I got to see a, a, a dear uh, old friend of mine who's uh, one of the top physicists in the world. And he's, he's a world famous scientist. In fact, he's got a, a, a bestseller on the New York Times uh, uh, bestseller list right now uh, called The Hidden Reality. Uh, it's Professor Brian Greene. And he's... Uh, He's talking in it about uh, uh, parallel universes and multiple universes and, and how the physics seems to lead to that. So I, I got a chance to kind of hang out with him a little bit and talk about some of these things and just, you know, just, just catch up in general. And anyway, after, after we left, I, I, I was wondering uh, to myself, uh, I was discussing with my wife just the idea of do we see the concept of parallel universes or multiple universes or what he calls the multiverse, right, in the Torah at all? Like, is that a Torah point of view? And just, I haven't read the book, so this is just based on a couple of things that I, I heard him say. So, But just so you, you get the idea, like, for instance, let's say someone goes to um, cross the street at, at, at the corner and he wants to cross the street but let's say he doesn't cross the street, or vice versa. Let's say he crossed the street but almost didn't cross the street. So, so in, in the realm of physics, there's a hypothesis 
that there is a universe where he did cross the street and one where he didn't cross the street. And all the ripple effects that, that go from there. So it's, 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 a far out, it's a far out concept. So, so do you see something like this in, in Torah at all? Right? So I just want to, to just, just open up the conversation and I'll, I'll tell you where we have sources and I'll tell you where we don't have sources. We'll just speculate and just explore it a little bit together, okay? So, so um, the first thing that I thought of is there's a line in the Rosh Hashanah Davening uh, where we talk about the ashes, we say the ashes of Yitzchak are before Hashem. So what does that mean? That means that when Abraham Avinu went during the Akedah where, where, where Yitzchak, his son, was on the altar and he was supposed to sacrifice him and offer him as a Korban Ola, which is like a total sacrifice. Like, you just, it goes up in flames and that's it, you know? Just, there's nothing left except ash. Okay? So obviously that didn't happen. That was never God's plan. Um, and, uh, and Yitzchak lived and survived the whole ordeal and, and everything like this. And yet we talk about the ashes of Yitzchak are before Hashem. So I thought, maybe, maybe that's evidence for the Torah's viewpoint that there are multiple universes. One where Yitzchak was offered as a korban, as a sacrifice, and the one where we live in, where he wasn't. But then, it seemed to me like that's probably not the case. Because the classic understanding of what the ashes of Yitzhak are, means to say that because Abraham so was 100% behind the idea of being willing to go through this ordeal, that God counted it as though he did it. And so, so to speak, the ashes of Yitzhak are before Hashem, meaning to say the complete willingness that Abraham Avinu had in order to do God's will, that that is before Hashem as though it, it even happened itself. So I'm raising that as a possibility and I'm rejecting it. Okay? Meaning to say that I don't think that it means that there's a parallel universe where it happened. It's just that, so to speak, because Abraham Avinu was so willing to do it, God counts it as though it did happen. Okay? Now, now here's something that I think is much more compelling. And uh, my wife Judy suggested this, and I think this is very, very cool. So in order to, in order to follow this, there's just, let me just remind you that um, Judaism believes in reincarnation. And that's something that's a surprising thought, I think, to, to many people, and I wish more people knew about that. Now, there are rabbis who don't agree with it, like the, the most famous being the Saudi Agon, around the 900s. Um, but the majority, the overwhelming majority of our greatest rabbis absolutely believe uh, that the Torah holds by reincarnation. The idea being that, that whatever a person doesn't fix in their lifetime, they, they come back and they, they fix it until they ultimately get it right. It's a very big subject, very complicated, but the notion is, is that we do come back. We do come back. So, so with that in mind, let's throw in another concept now, which is the idea that God is inside time and he's out of time as well. He's within time and he's also removed from time. So what does that mean? That means that God is with us in our lives right now, 100%. But nonetheless, he's also 
dimensions beyond, 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 beyond. He fills the whole world and he's beyond, beyond, beyond at the same time. Okay? That's just an aspect of his infinity. He, filled, he fills all realms, all dimensions. Okay. So now with that in mind, we understand that the past, the present, and the future is all before Hashem. Meaning to say that while Hashem is with us right now, at the same time, Hashem in His infinity has a perspective where He's able to see the past, the present, and the future all before Himself. Right? So, so now, if you factor in this idea of reincarnation, right? That means that, I'll use myself as an example, okay? Let's say, and who knows what, who knows when I've lived or how many times or whatever it is, but that means that simultaneously before God, I'm living at the time of the Holy Temple. I'm living in the Middle Ages. I'm living during the Renaissance period. And I'm right now in Los Angeles in 2011. All at the same time from God's perspective. So that would, suggest, that, that would be like parallel universes because there I am simultaneously from God's perspective, living my life all at the same time, right? So now, now I don't know if this is, when, when they talk about it on the level of physics, whether that's the construct of multiple universes or parallel universes that the physicists have in mind, but I'm saying that you do see such an idea, at least in, in this context, from the Torah perspective, right? Now, what... Now I'm going to enter into the realm of speculation a little bit by asking a question, which is that, you see, there are very many mysterious things that happen to us, and some of them can be explained by things that we're correcting in our life right now from a previous lifetime. Okay? And they're mysterious to us because we say, what did I do to deserve that? Right? Like, why do I have to go through this? Or what am, I, what am I meant to fix through this set of circumstances going on right now? And sometimes it's something that we did, you know, two weeks ago. Oh, remember when you yelled at that person asking for money on the street? That's why. So it's actually not that mysterious why you're going through whatever it is, you know, if you only looked into your own actions. But sometimes you do look into your own actions and you say, well, wait a second, you know, I, I don't know what it is. And sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes, it's something based on a previous life thing. Right? Or a mysterious interaction between you and another person. Where, um, whatever it is, where someone sort of mysteriously benefits you. Well, it's possible that they're repaying you for something that you did very positive to them in a, in a previous lifetime. Or the opposite, where someone all of a sudden is giving you a very hard time. And it could be that you gave them a very hard time in a previous lifetime. So there's, there's all sorts of things like this. Um, so, so in other words, if, if, if we return back to this idea of, um, of you are living simultaneously from God's perspective, who's outside of time, right? That you're living simultaneously. Those earlier lifetimes, while they're going on simultaneously, are affecting... The later lifetimes. Do you hear what I'm saying? So what you're doing in, you know, in Athens, you know, in, the, 
2,000 years ago is affecting what you're up to right now. Right? So that starts to get a little bit freaky, right? If you think of it from that perspective. Um, now, now, we also have the concept that things, sometimes things happen to me, again, on a mysterious level, like I don't understand why this is happening to me, right? Because of something that's going to happen to me down the line. And so in order to prepare us for that, God is putting us through this right now in preparation for a future event that hasn't happened yet. So again, that's another time-bending concept. Now I'll give you an example of that in the Torah. Which is, um, which is that one of the reasons that's given, there are many reasons given why the Red Sea parted uh, on behalf of the Jewish people. One of the reasons that's given is that it was done in the merit of the half shekel that we were going to give in the Mishkan, in the tabernacle in the desert, the, you know, like the, the prototype of the Holy Temple. So, so if you think about that, that's a little bit problematic, since it didn't exist yet. <laughs> so you're saying this awesome miracle, this awesome miracle, the splitting of the Red Sea happened on the merit of something that I didn't do yet. Okay, not only that, but there's a, another even more fundamental uh, uh, example of this, which is that one of the reasons that it said that God took us out of Egypt was in order to give us the Torah at Mount Sinai, which we were going to accept. So that means that the merit for accepting the Torah at Mount Sinai, we hadn't done that yet. And yet it was causing all sorts of miracles to happen in our lives, in terms of the plagues and everything like that, in order to get out of Egypt. So, there's another example where, now, I, so, understand, I'm, I'm offering two constructs right now. One is where our past is affecting our present, right? A previous lifetime is affecting our present. The second one, which we just said, was where my future, which hasn't taken place yet, is affecting my present, right? So, these are, these are all concepts that you find in Torah, now, according to physics, time, now this is, I just got two pages into this book, so <laughs> I don't know if they stay with this uh, hypothesis, but it seems, I think they do, is that time flows in one direction. It flows from the past into the present to the future. It doesn't go in the opposite direction. Meaning to say, you don't wake up a couple of times a week and it's yesterday, <laughs> Oh, it's yesterday. Oh, man. This was a great day. I am so glad it's... Oh, no. It's two days ago. Oh, no. You know what I mean? It's just time flows in one direction. Now, since God creates the, these laws, it's not like, oh, the scientists created that time can only go in one direction, so God says, oh, I would have liked time to go in the other direction, too. Oh, well. That's not it. God himself created the world so that time flows in one direction. Okay? So, that being the case, what I'm about to suggest now seems really improbable. And I don't think it's accurate, but just for the purposes of discussion, let me just throw it out, okay? What is it, would it be possible if you, again, imagine you're living in five different periods in human history, okay? 
And since God is outside of time, and the past, the present, and the future is all in front of God equally, is it possible that, um, that something positive that I'm doing in Los Angeles right now, a big mitzvah that I'm doing right now, may help me escape the Cossacks in the 1700s? In other words, is it possible, and then because I helped the Cossacks, because I did this big mitzvah, I gave tzedakah, I gave a lot of charity, or I did something really good, that was a benefit. I'm able to escape the Cossacks in the 1700s and live, and then that allows me to be alive today. Right? So you get into all sorts of, you know, back-to-the-future type <laughs> scenarios. You know? But I don't know, I don't know that that, that one is, 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 is right. I don't know if that one is right, because... Like I say, it seems that time flows in one direction. That being the case, I don't know how you could reconcile a scenario like that. And I'll throw out a, 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 a support for, for this. I know we're in the realm of massive speculation here, but just, just to throw it out. I was thinking that one thing that supports this idea that maybe the mitzvahs that I'm doing right now are not impacting previous lifetimes of mine, which are going on right now, right? According to at least this one way of looking at it, is you have this, this notion in the Torah of the rebellious son, the Ben Soramora. It's a, it's a very kind of way out thing, where if a child, and there's so many, listen to this, there's so many restrictions on the case that I'm about to give you. So many restrictions. It's so improbable that, 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 that this could actually happen, even though the Torah offers it, that in the Talmud, they come right out and they say, this never happened. It's a mitzvah. No one denies that, that what I'm about to tell you is a mitzvah. But the Talmud says, this absolutely never happened. Okay, but what's the case? The case is if there's a, a son who's a certain age, he has to be a very particular age, like 12 or something like this, and he's a glutton, and he's a drunk, basically, and he's very rebellious and he doesn't listen to his parents, okay? This child can actually be brought up on capital, as on a capital offense and killed by the court. Why? So that whatever merit, in other words, the the criteria that he's transgressed are basically the profile for a, 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 a someone who's going to damage society later on. So because this guy is just a time bomb in the waiting, they say, you know what, get rid of him right now. This way, all the merits that he's accumulated at this point in his life He'll be able to leave the world in, in the black, so to speak, instead of massively plunging into the red and messing up the entire world around him. Okay? Now, now they say that never happened. They say no one was actually ever, no kid was ever killed or anything like that. But then, interestingly, there is one opinion, one of the sages in the Gomorrah says, not only did it happen, but I stood on his grave. I saw the grave of the person it happened to. So I, I don't know what to make out of this. 
But let's just say if it happened, maybe it happened once or something like that. Or, or maybe it didn't happen, and there's another sort of like way out point that that rabbi was making. I don't know. Anyway. What's the point? Why am I bringing this up? Because why, seemingly, why would you get rid of that kid if that kid in a future life could just do a mitzvah and in going back in time lift up his merit while he's being the rebellious child? In other words, why would the Torah ever give up on anyone if there are future parallel versions of that person who at any time could do a big mitzvah and retroactively lift them up spiritually. Do, do, do you hear the point? So they, it, it would seem like that would be a very impractical or mean or, or unnecessary mitzvah to have. And, but then I thought to myself, so then that made me reject the idea that the mitzvahs that you're doing right now might affect you in an earlier parallel universe, right? But, if it in fact never happened, <laughs> then maybe, maybe this isn't a, an argument against it. So, so, anyway, like I say, we're in the realm of speculation right now. But it, there are just interesting thoughts back and forth. Um, what I would say is that we, we see that time seems to flow in one direction. And given that, it would seem unlikely, even though God has the past, the present, and the future in front of him at all times, that one's actions in the present could affect previous lifetimes. So that, that's where I would come down now. But I'd like to discuss this with people who know substantially more than I do <laughs> and get their take on it as well. But, but, uh, but nonetheless, nonetheless, time, time. So, have a good time change. <laughs> let's go back to that. Um, and now, let's go on to another subject. Um, so, let's see. So far, we've discussed uh, the tsunami, parallel universes, and now let's go on to a light subject like the white fire in the Torah. <laughs> so, so uh, we... We discussed it last week, and um, if you didn't have a chance to, to hear that talk, uh, I recommend it. It's, there's some very interesting ideas. It, it's called Black Fire on White Fire. And, um, and anyway, I'm, I'm just going to sort of add to it and hopefully not, uh, not repeat too much. Um, so, so, this past week's Parsha, we just started a new book in the Torah, Vayikra. Vayikra is an amazing book for, for many, many reasons. Um, it's basically the big vav of the Torah. Okay? And what I mean by that is it's the middle book of the Torah. There are five books of the Torah. There are two, two on this side and two on the other side. And Vayikra is the middle book. So Vayikra, if you will, is sort of like the, the vav is the connector. It's sort of like that, that linchpin in between. Right? It's also interesting because every single Parsha in Vayikra, starts with the letter Vav. Except for the last Parsha, which is the, begins with the letter Aleph. You know, and everyone knows the Aleph is another way of representing God, because Aleph is the number one, and God is one. So, and Vayikra is talking about um, the offerings that we would bring in the Holy Temple. 
So, so the holy temple itself is a vav, because that's, that's the connector, that's sort of the portal, if you will, between heaven and earth. Okay, so, so the vav of Vayikra goes all the way up to the Aleph of Hashem, because all the offerings are going all the way up to the highest place in heaven. So, so now, you know, when you talk about, when you talk about uh, this idea of the Vav, especially the Vav in Hashem's name, remember, whenever we talk about Hashem's name, the Yud and the He and the Vav and the He, always imagine a ladder, right? Always imagine these letters going up and down. And, and, and the, the bottom two letters, Vav and He, all the Rebbe's say that the, the, the bottom He of Hashem's name stands for this world. Okay, and then the Vav is sort of like the connector, if you will, to the higher realms. So these letters, Vav and He, are very, are very, very significant. And I mentioned that we're going to talk about the, the white fire in the Torah. So Rashi, at the beginning of Vayikra, says that um, the white spaces in the Torah are where God gave Moshe time to contemplate what God was saying. So you see, again, the, the Ramban says in his introduction to the, to the Torah that the whole Torah is black fire and white fire. The first thing that we have to understand is that the white space in the Torah is not just empty space. It's not just paper, so to speak. It's not insignificant. It has a spiritual integrity of its own. And um, again, if you listen to the talk Black Fire and White Fire, you'll get all sorts of uh, more information about this in terms of the letter Pei and Bays and all sorts of things like this. Um, but anyway, understand that on, on first and foremost, that the white space in the Torah has spiritual significance. So Rashi is bringing that, that Hashem, so to speak, stopped at all these places throughout the Torah. If you ever see an open Torah scroll, you'll see that um, some lines are full. They, they're, they're full lines across. And other lines, there are big white breaks in them. And that's time where Moshe thought. Uh, the amazing thing that that's actually chronicled. You know, so, you know, it would be, I don't really do this, but it would be an interesting way to approach Torah study. Because the... Um, Books of Torah, when you get it in book form, they also show you where those white spaces are. And if you skip over a white space, it might be useful to ask yourself the question, if Moshe had to think at this moment, (laughs) shouldn't I take a moment to think at this moment? Like, what question is the text raising that's, you know, it doesn't seem like a question is being asked, but obviously something major is going down at this moment. Because otherwise, why is God and Moses taking the time to really contemplate it at this moment? So that's, that, that might just be a, a way to approach future Torah study with that in mind. Now, now, I want to just tell you that Rabbi Yitzhak Isaac Haver, uh, one of the great rabbis um, who was a student of the Vilna Gon, basically offered another way of understanding the white space and, the, and, and, and the, the white fire and the black fire, which is that the black fire is that which is revealed in this world at the present time, and the white fire is that which, has, which isn't revealed in this world. In other words, it's there. It's there. But it's just not revealed yet. Okay? 
So again, you're understanding the white space in the Torah as a significant player. It's just not fully revealed and manifest to us what it is exactly. Okay? But it doesn't mean it's not there. It's, 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 a, it's a thing, if you will. You know, that's a very descriptive term, isn't it? <laughs> well, you know, that, that would be a thing, if, you know. I, <laughs> I have many degrees in the subject. <laughs> we call this a thing. Um, no, so, anyway. Um, but let's turn our attention to Purim right now. Um, and see an example of the white fire in Purim, okay? Which is that um, when we talk, Purim is all about stamping out Amalek. And uh, Amalek is doubt. Amalek is that which tries to undermine the whole concept of God in this world. And one of the most famous passages, um, it's, it's right, uh, it's at the very end of the Parsha of when we uh, leave what, what, what is it where's the splitting of the Red Sea what is that right before Yisra Beshalach thank you so right right uh, at the end of Beshalach if you want to see it with your own eyes it talks about um, this ongoing battle in the generations that in every generation we're battling a Malik okay this 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 concept this 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 this, this, this enemy of goodness basically and it says that that it says that this battle goes on in every generation, and 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 the Torah uses an amazing uh, uh, two words, case Yah, Yah being a name of Hashem. Uh, but Rashi points out that case Yah is actually a an abridged form of kise Hashem. Um, so, in other words, both of these words are missing something. Case is missing the Aleph at the end, which would be Kise, because it's, that's the throne, that's a chair, that's the throne of God. And Hashem's name is just written Yud and He, that it's missing Vav and He. Now, remember, what did we say? That if you imagine the name of God, Vav and He would be the revealed dimensions of godliness. Right? That's, the, that's, that's this world and even sort of the more upper realms which we can maybe grasp with our mind if not actually see them. So, so the Vav and the He are missing from Hashem's name. They are, if you will, in the white fire. Just the black fire of the Yud and the He are visible, but the white fire of the Vav and the He are not visible. Now Rashi says that as long as evil is manifest in this world, as long as a Malik is around, that the Vav and the He are not realized. We don't, they're not revealed. We don't see them. As long as evil is around, God is not fully manifest in this world. Now, understand, God fills this entire world. God runs everything. But nonetheless, the goodness of God, the reality of God, is not openly apparent at this stage in history as long as Amalek, as long as evil still has a role to play in this world. Okay? Now, so the Vav and the He are, are sort of like, are sort of in the white fire there. 
Now listen to this. This is a Torah from the Jikover Rebbe, the Jikover Rebbe, who is the son of the Ropshitzer Rebbe. And, and, it, and, it, and it goes like this. He, he explains it the following way. I heard this from Rabbi Weinberger. Um, which, is, which is Hashem's name, this name, yud Hey and vav Hey, is also known as the Tetragrammaton, right? And it is an expression of God's uh, infinity. And that it's an amalgam of three words. Was, is, and will be. Or in Hebrew, Haya, Hove, and Yiya. Okay? Was, is, and will be. Past, present, and future. Like, get kind of lumped together and form this name of God. Okay? The Jacob Rebbe says, look how Amalek is wiping out the love and the hay. The, this revealed aspect of, of godliness in this world. So he says, how does Amalek attack us personally? With this in mind, how does Amalek really affect us? So he says, look, with the, with the letters Yud and Hay, because that's all that's left in that name, right? With the letters Yud and Hay, you can actually, in Hebrew, spell the word past and future, but you need the Vav, which is missing, in order to spell the word for present. Okay? With Yud and Hay, you can spell Haya, because that's Hey Yud Hay, and you can spell Yiyeh, which is also just composed of the letters Yud and Hay. But in order to spell the word Hove, which means right now, the present tense, you need the Vav. So what does that mean? So something absolutely amazing, which is Amalek, like this voice inside of our head, that the evil inclination, if you will, or negativity, or however you want to phrase it, comes to us and says, you know what? Okay, let's be honest. Where did the world come from? There, you know, there's got to be a creator. There's got to be a creator. Okay, God was. I, I can accept that. God was. And you know what? Maybe down the line we're going to get it together. Maybe it's going to take a zillion years. But eventually we're going to get it together. So you know what? God will be. Again, I accept that. But right now, where's God? Right now in your life, where's God? Everything you're going through, God's not there. See, do you, do you hear what, what happened? Because there's no vav, because Amalek knocks out the vav, and you can't spell the word hove, which means right now, Amalek comes to us and says, you know, we want to believe in God, believe in God. But let's be real, is God really so, so involved in your life? Is God, does God love you so much that He's actually right there with you right now? Come on. And that's the fundamental, because the truth is, is that if I believe in God, that, that, there, that there was a God and that there will be a God, but if I don't believe that there's a God right now, then what good is it? What good is anything, really? Where's my foundation? We were talking about foundations earlier. Where's my foundation if I don't believe in the nowness of God? That's a good title for something. The nowness of God, Right? I don't know if I'd buy that book, but <laughs> I liked it a second ago. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, the, can I just tell you a story about the power of now? I, that was a New York Times number one bestseller. And I gave a series of talks about three years before that book came out called The Power of Now. <laughs> <laughs> Attended by about 
seven people. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember thinking of the title and thinking, that's a good title. And then it was like, oh yeah, that really is a good title. <laughs> anyway, so um, the problem is, is that once you think of the title, you actually have to write the book. <laughs> um, so, so, so how do we, how do we, how do we, how do we get the present back? So we see how Amalek attacks the present. So how do you reclaim the present? How about that? Reclaiming the present. There's another one. <laughs> so how do you reclaim the present? Um, and the, remember, we wipe out Amalek with Purim. Purim is the wiping out of Amalek because Haman, who's the villain of, of the whole Purim uh, thing, he tried to kill all of us. So Haman was an Amalekite. So, so how, do you, how, do you, how, is, how is Purim in our own personal life today the, the antidote to, to, to all of this? And the answer is, is that Purim utilizes this amazing spiritual tool which is called Simcha. Simcha is translated as happiness, but it's, it's way more than that. Because what happens with happiness is, um, is you're, you're able to expand your consciousness. And you see, what happens with sorrow, with sadness, with doubt, with all these things, is that it narrows your focus into the, your immediate problems and what you're going through right now. And since... It's a problem because there isn't a solution right now. That's, that's the definition of a problem, is, is that it's sort of like a double bad. One, it gives you tunnel vision so that you're just concentrating on your problem. And two, you're additionally fo- frustrated because there's no solution for that problem right now. So, so it's just, it's, a, it's, it's like you're, you're handcuffed. You see, but what Simcha does is, is it broadens, it expands your consciousness and you're able to think of the past, and you're able to think of the future, and you're able to remember all the wonderful things that have happened to you in the past, and all the wonderful things that await you in the future. I'll tell you, one of the nicest things anyone ever said to me was, was I was online at Carvel, <laughs> and, uh, and it, I think it was my birthday. I think so. But, and I saw someone who I knew... Uh, an elderly lady, and she said to me, do you know all of the wonderful things God has in store for you? And it made, it made me so happy. It made me so happy because I thought, wow, you know, I didn't really think of the future. A lot of times what people do is, when they think of the future, all they do is they just take the worst aspects of the present and they project them on and sort of like they unfurl the carpet of badness. You know what I mean? It's sort of like there, that's where I'm heading. But the reality is, is that the future is, is, is open. It's, it's very, it's very, very malleable. You know what I mean? It's, it's clay in your hands. What do you, what do you want to do with it? You know what I mean? So, so, um, so anyway, Simcha expands your consciousness and it allows you to, to reclaim the past, to reclaim the future, and to put it all together. And then all of a sudden, your sort of tunnel focus on the present is, just kind of goes away. And then you're, you're happy. And that's, that's, it's a tremendous fixing. It's a tremendous spiritual tool. And by the way, one of the great ways that we do that 
is, is through gratitude. Just, you know, remembering all the good things that have happened, you know? Because uh, all that's from God, you know? Everything is. Okay. So now I want to get a little bit deeper. Remember, let's just revisit this idea that the vav and the hay of Hashem's name represents that, that which is revealed in the world. And then the yud and the hay are sort of the, the upper reaches. By the way, to give you another example of how this connects with Purim, this thought is from the B'nai Saskar. Something very, very interesting. It says in the, um, in the Gomorrah that, um, that the, you can start beginning the reading of the Megillah on the 11th of Adar, and then you can go up till the 15th of Adar. Okay? So back in the day when you had like tiny little villages who didn't necessarily have someone who could read the Megillah, you know, they, they extended it to make it, to make it, um, to make it uh, sort of like um, accessible for people who knew how to read to get to the surrounding villages. And so they opened up the permissible time of when you could read, so you could even start on the 11th of Adar. Okay? Now, in the walled cities, we read on the 14th. Basically, the two main days where you read is almost the whole world reads on the 14th of Adar. And those who live in walled cities that were walled from the time of Yehoshua, those people can read um, on, the, on the 15th of Adar. Okay? So now listen to this far-out concept. The B'nai Yisaskar talks about how, because listen, Purim is all about understanding God and also God's hiddenness and how he's there even when he's hidden, right? So he says, what's, you see, you see the laws of reading the Megillah in the name of Hashem. yud Hey and vav Hey, right? So he said, vav Hey represents the, the revealed aspects of the world, right? Right? That's what we've been saying. So if you add up the vav and Hey, vav is six, K is 5 in Gematria. That adds up to 11. So you can start reading in the unwalled areas on the 11th of Adar. Right? And then what about Yud and He? That represents the upper reaches of Hashem, that which we can't comprehend. Where do they read? Yud and He adds up to Yud is 10, He is 5, that's the 15th. The 15th, it's read in walled areas, that which are sealed off, that which the mind is not able to penetrate. Right? That's the Vinaya Saskar. Uh, it gives me chills, you know. Yeah, thank God, you know. All right, anyway. So, so now listen to this. So, Vav and Hay. So, I saw this. This thought came to me. It says in the Gomorrah that when it comes to the letter Vav, and remember... One of the ideas is that the, we're, we're entering Vayikra right now, which is a big vav, and it's all vavs. Yeah. So it says that in the Gomorrah, that Rabbi Akiva darshaned all the vavs. Meaning to say that he would actually learn practical halacha, practical Jewish law, if there was an extra vav in the verse in the Torah, in the Pasuk in the Torah. It's a very high level. Not everyone held by that. Some people said, look, that vav in the, in, the, in the Pasuk, in the verse in the Torah, is a grammatical construct and is not a halachic construct. In other words, you need the vav there for the passage to make sense, but you don't necessarily learn out a law from the vav. 
Rabbi Akiva was learning out laws from the Vavs. All right? Now, listen to how cool this is. In Gomorrah Yuma, which is talking about Yom Kippur, and this particular passage is talking about um, uh, f- what fire we, we, we use to bring the, um, the incense offering in the Holy of Holies, okay? So, so they're, they're going back and forth, and it's all based on the, on the opening of, of Parshas Vayikra, right? And finally, they're going back and forth, and do you darshan the vav, and do you not darshan the vav, and if you darshan the vav, it means this, and anyway, they're going back and forth. But then the Gomorrah gives an amazing opinion. They say, you know what, the solution to the whole problem is this word, ve-ha-esh. Okay, so without getting into the whole um, um, back and forth of the Gomorrah, the solution that they all finally agree on is because this word, ve-ha-esh, appears in the Torah. Okay, and then they're able to solve the problems. And they say, you know something? Every, people, not everyone darshans the letter Vav, but when you have a Vav connected to a He, as in this word, Ve-Ha-Esh, then everyone agrees that the Vav has significance, and you darshan the Vav, and you learn a halacha from the Vav. When it's attached to the letter He, everyone agrees that you'll learn out a halacha from the Vav. All right, so that's all it says. Now, I started working with that, and I'd like to report the following result <laughs> from the Torah lab, which is, which, is, which is the following. Again, imagine the name of Hashem, Yud and He and Vav and He, right? So that He, the bottom He, stands for this realm, if you will. The Vav is already reaching up to higher dimensions, okay? So... So not all the rabbis, darshan, learn practical halacha in this realm from the letter Vav. Meaning to say, they are Torah concepts and they're out there. But do they necessarily apply to this realm of existence? Some say yes, some say no. Rabbi Akiva says yes on a uniform level, but he's the only one who says it every time. Other people say not necessarily. But everyone agrees when you have a Vav that's followed by the letter He, that it applies and that you can learn out halacha from the letter Vav. Meaning to say that when this upper realm is attached to the He, when that idea of the Vav is attached to this realm, which is the lower He, when the Vav and the He are connected, then for sure you have to learn halacha because it's applying to the realm that we live in now. So... So let's just wrap it up. Let's just wrap it up and uh, and just conclude with this thought, which is this idea that each one of us is a letter in the Torah. And that being the case, we all are black fire, you know? And but we're black fire against white fire. Meaning that Hashem is is, is, is with us right now. In other words, some people say, Hashem is, or I have to imagine that Hashem is here, or whatever it is, or maybe He's up, way up in the heavens. But you see, if you imagine yourself as black fire, you are black fire against or amidst the white fire, which means that Hashem is palpably, palpably, in front of you, behind you, around you, surrounding you. And wherever you go, 
you're black fire amidst white fire. And, and that's the reality of Hashem. And what could be more beautiful than being embraced in this way? Okay, have a great week. Thank you.